Chapter Twelve of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Gibney, Arkansas, December two thousand seven. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter Twelve: Destruction of Songbirds by Southern Negroes and Poor Whites. Before going farther, there is one point I wish to make quite clear. Whenever the people of a particular race make a specialty of some particular type of wrongdoing, any one who pointedly rebukes the faulty members of that race is immediately accused of race prejudice. On account of the facts I am now setting forth about the doings of Italian and Negro bird killers, I expect to be accused along that line. If I am. I shall strenuously deny the charge. The facts speak for themselves. Zoologically, however, I am strongly prejudiced against the people of any race, creed, club, state, or nation who make a specialty of any particularly offensive type of bird or wild animal slaughter, and I do not care who knows it. The time was, and I remember it very well, when even the poorest gunner scorned to kill birds that were not considered game. In days lang syne, many a zoological collector has been jeered because the specimens he had killed for preservation were not game. But times have changed. In the wearing of furs, we have bumped down steps both high and steep. In 1880, American women wore sealskin, marten, otter, beaver, and mink. Today, nothing that wears hair is too humble to be skinned and worn. Today, they are wearing. Skins of muskrats, foxes, rabbits, skunks, domestic cats, squirrels, and even rats, and see how the taste for game of some sections of our population also has gone down. In the north, the Italians are fighting for the privilege of eating everything that wears feathers, but we allow no birds to be shot for food save game birds and cranes. In the south, the Negroes and poor whites are killing songbirds, woodpeckers. And doves for food, and in several states some of it is done under the authority of the laws. Look at these awful lists. In these states, robins are legally shot and eaten. Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Maryland, Texas, Florida. In these states, blackbirds are legally shot and eaten. Louisiana, District of Columbia, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee. Cranes are shot and eaten in these states: Colorado, North Dakota, Nevada, Oklahoma, Nebraska. In Mississippi, the cedar bird is legally shot and eaten. In North Carolina, the meadowlark is shot and eaten. In the following states, doves are considered game and are shot in an open season: Alabama, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia. Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Utah, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas. The killing of doves represents a great and widespread decline in the ethics of sportsmanship. In the twenty-six states named. A great many men who call themselves sportsmen indulge in the cheap and ignoble pastime 
of potting weak and confiding doves. It is on a par with the sport of hunting English sparrows in a city street. Of course this is, to a certain extent, a matter of taste, but there is at least one club of sportsmen into which no dove-killer can enter, provided his standard of ethics is known in advance. With the killing of robins, larks, blackbirds, and cedar-birds for food, the case is quite different. No white man calling himself a sportsman ever indulges in such low pastimes as the killing of such birds for food. That burden of disgrace rests upon the negroes and poor whites of the South. But at the same time, it is a shame that respectable white men sitting in state legislatures should deliberately enact laws permitting such disgraceful practices, or permit such disgraceful and ungentlemanly laws to remain in force. Here is a case by way of illustration, copied very recently from the Atlanta Journal. Editor Journal I located a robin roost up the Trinity River, six miles from Dallas, and prevailed on six Dallas sportsmen to go with me on a torchlight bird hunt. This style of hunting was, of course, new to Texans, but they finally consented to go, and I had the pleasure of showing them how it was done. Equipped with torchlights and shotguns, we proceeded. After reaching the hunting grounds, the sport began in reality, and continued for two hours and ten minutes, with a total slaughter of 10,157 birds, an average of 1,451 birds killed by each man. But the Texans give me credit for killing at least 2,000 of the entire number. I was called the King of Bird Hunters by the sportsmen of Dallas, Texas, and have been invited to command-in-chief the next party of hunters which go from Dallas to the Indian Territory in search of large game. F. L. Crow, Dallas, Texas, former Atlantan. Dallas, Texas papers and Oklahoma papers, please copy. The Robin of the North, our best beloved songbird, now being legally shot as game in the South. In the north there is now only one robin for every ten formerly there. As a further illustration of the spirit manifested in the south toward robins, I quote the following story from Dr. P. P. Claxton of the University of Tennessee, as related in Audubon Educational Leaflet Number 46 by Mr. T. Gilbert Pearson. The roost to which I refer, says Professor Claxton, was situated in what is locally known as a cedar glade near Porestville, Bedford County, Tennessee. This is a great cedar country, and robins used to come in immense numbers during the winter months to feed on the berries. The spot which the roost occupied was not unlike numerous others that might have been selected. The trees grew to a height of from five to thirty feet, and for a mile square were literally loaded at night with robins. Hunting them while they roosted was a favorite sport. A man would climb a cedar tree with a torch, while his companions with poles and clubs would disturb the sleeping birds on the adjacent trees. Blinded by the light, the suddenly awakened birds flew to the torch-bearer, who, as he seized each bird, would quickly pull off its head and drop it into a sack suspended from his shoulders. The capture of three or four hundred birds was an ordinary night's work, Men and boys would come in wagons from all the adjoining counties and camp near the roost for the purpose of killing robins. Many times, one hundred or more hunters with torches and clubs would be at work in a single night. 
For three years this tremendous slaughter continued in winter, and then the survivors deserted the roost. No, these people were not Apache Indians, led by a Geronimo who knew no mercy, no compassion. We imagined that they were mostly poor white trash of Tennessee. One small hamlet sent to market annually enough dead robins to return five hundred dollars at five cents per dozen, which means one hundred twenty thousand birds. Last winter, Mr. Edward A. McElhenney of Avery Island, Louisiana, south of New Iberia, informed me that every winter, during the two weeks that the holly berries are ripe, thousands of robins come to his vicinity to feed upon them. Then every negro man and boy who can raise a gun is after them. About ten thousand robins are slaughtered each day while they remain. Their dead bodies are sold in New Iberia at ten cents each. The accompanying illustrations taken by Mr. McElhenney shows 195 robins on one tree and explains how such great slaughter is possible. An officer of the Louisiana Audubon Society states that a conservative estimate of the number of robins annually killed in Louisiana for food purposes when they are usually plentiful is a quarter of a million. The food of the robin is as follows. Insects, 40 percent. Wild fruit, 43 percent. Cultivated fruit, 8 percent. Miscellaneous vegetable food, 5 percent. Special Work of the Southern Negroes In 1912, a female colored servant, who recently had arrived from country life in Virginia, chanced to remark to me at our country home in the middle of August, I wish I could find some birds' nests. What for? I asked, rather puzzled. Why, to get the eggs and eat em, she responded with a bright smile and flashing teeth. Do you eat the eggs of wild birds? Yes, indeed. It's fine to get a partridge nest. From them we nearly always get a whole dozen of eggs at once, back where I live in Virginia. Do the colored people of Virginia make a practice of hunting for the eggs of wild birds and eating them? Yes, indeed we do. In the spring and summer, when the birds are around, we used to get out every Sunday and hunt all day. Some days we'd come back with a whole bucket full of eggs, and then we'd set up half the night cooking and eating them. They was awful good. Her face fairly beamed at the memory of it. A few days later, this story of the doings of Virginia Negroes was fully corroborated by a colored man who came from another section of that state. Three months later, after special inquiries made at my request, a gentleman of Richmond obtained further corroboration from Negroes. He was himself much surprised by the state of fact that was revealed to him. In the North, the economic value of our songbirds and other destroyers of insects and weed seeds is understood by a majority of the people, and as far as possible those birds are protected from all human enemies. But in the South, a new division of the Army of Destruction has risen into deadly prominence. In Recreation Magazine for May, 1909, Mr. Charles Askins published a most startling and illuminating article entitled The South's Problem in Game Protection. It brought together in concrete form and with eyewitness reliability the impressions that for months previous had been gaining ground in the North. In order to give the testimony of a man who has seen what he describes, I shall now give numerous quotations from Mr. Askin's article, which certainly bears the stamp of truthfulness without any race prejudice whatever. It is a calm, 
judicial, unemotional analysis of a very bad situation, and I particularly commend it alike to the farmers of the North and all the true sportsmen of the South. In his opening paragraphs, Mr. Askins describes game and hunting conditions in the South as they were down to twenty years ago, when the Negroes were too poor to own guns, and shooting was not for them. SPECIAL WORK OF THE SOUTHERN NEGROES It is all different now, says Mr. Askins, and the old days will only come back with the water that has gone down the stream. The master is with his fathers, or he is whiling away his last days on the courthouse steps of the town. Perhaps a chimney or two remain of what was once the big house on the hill. Possibly it is still standing, but as forlorn and lifeless as a dead tree. The muscadine grapes still grow in the swale, and the persimmons in the pasture field, but neither possum nor coon is left to eat them. The last deer vanished years ago, the rabbits died in their baby coats, and the quail were killed in June. Old Uncle Ike has gone across the great river with his master, and his grandson glances at you askance, nods sullenly, whistles to his half-breed bird-dog, shoulders his three-dollar gun, and leaves you. He is typical of the change and has caused it, this grandson of dear old Uncle Ike. In the same way the white man is telling the black to abide upon the plantation raising cotton and corn, and further than this nothing will be required of him. He can cheat a white man or a black, steal in a petty way anything that comes handy, live in marriage or out of it to please himself, kill another negro if he likes, and lastly shoot every wild thing that can be eaten, if only he raises the cotton and corn. But the white sportsmen of the South have never willingly granted the shooting privilege in its entirety, and hence this story. They have told him to trap the rabbits, pot the robins, slaughter the doves, kill the songbirds, but to spare the white sportsman's game, the aristocratic little bob-white quail. In the beginning not so much damage to southern game interests could be accomplished by our colored man and brother, however decided his inclinations. He had no money, no ammunition, and no gun. His weapons were an axe, a club, a trap, and a hound-dog. Possibly he might own an old war-musket bored out for shot. Such an outfit was not adapted to quail-shooting, and especially to wing-shooting, with which knowledge Dixie's sportsmen were content. Let the negro ramble about with his hound-dog and his war-musket. He couldn't possibly kill the quail. And so Uncle Ike's grandson loafed and pottered about in the fields with his axe and his hound-dogs, not doing so much harm to the quail, but acquiring knowledge of the habits of the birds and skill as a still-hunting pot-hunter that would serve him well later on. The negro belongs to a primitive race of people, and all such races have keener eyes than white men whose fathers have pored over lines of black and white. He learned to see the rabbit in its form, the squirrels in the leafy trees, and the quails huddled in the grass. The least shade of gray in the shadow of the creek bank he distinguished at once as a rabbit, a glinting flash from a treetop he knew instantly as being caused by the slight movement of a hidden squirrel, and the quiver of a single stem of sedge-grass told him of a bevy of birds hiding in the depths. The pot-hunting negro has all the skills of the Indian, has more industry in his loafing, and kills without pity and without restraint. This grandson of Uncle Ike was growing sulky, too, with the knowledge that the white man was bribing him with half a loaf 
to raise cotton and corn when he might as well exact it all, and this he shortly did, as we shall see. The time came when cotton went up to sixteen cents a pound, and single breech-loading guns went down to five dollars apiece. The negro had money now, and the merchants, these men who had said, let the nigger alone so long as he raises cotton and corn, sold him the guns, a gun for every black idler, man and boy, in all the South. Then shortly a wail went up from the sportsmen. The niggers are killing our quail. They not only were killing them, but most of the birds were already dead. On the grounds of the Southern Field Club, where sixty bevies were raised by the dogs in one day, within two years but three bevies could be found in a day by the hardest kind of hunting, and this story was repeated all over the South. Now the negro began to raise bird dogs in place of hounds, and he carried his new gun to church if services happened to be held on a weekday. Finally the negro had grown up and had compassed his ambition. He could shoot partridges flying just the same as a white man, was a white man except for a trifling difference in color, and he could kill more birds, too, three times as many. It was merely a change from the old order to the new in which a dark-skinned sportsman had taken the place in plantation life of the dear old colonel of loved memory. The negro had exacted his price for raising cotton and corn. THE SOUTHERN NEGRO METHOD OF COMBING OUT THE WILDLIFE Our colored sportsman is gregarious at all times, but especially so in the matter of recreation. He may slouch about alone and pot a bevy or two of quail when in actual need of something to eat, or when he has a sale for the birds, but when it comes to shooting for fun he wants to be with the gang. I have seen the darkies at Christmas time collect fifty in a drove with every man his dog, and spread out over the fields, such a glorious time as he has then. A single cottontail will draw a half-dozen shots, and perhaps a couple of young bucks will pour loads into a bunny after he is dead, out of pure deviltry and high spirits. I once witnessed the accidental killing of a young negro on this kind of a foray. His companions loaded him into a wagon, stuck a cigar in his mouth, and tried to pour whiskey down him every time they took a drink themselves as they rode back to town. This army of black hunters and their dogs cross field after field, combing the country with fine teeth that leave neither wild animal nor bird life behind. There comes a time toward the spring of the year after the quail season is over when the average rural darky is between hay and grass. The merchants on whom he has depended for supplies make it a practice to refuse credit between January 1st and crop time. The black has spent his cotton money, his sweet potato pile has vanished, the sorghum barrel is empty, he has eaten the last of his winter's pork, and all that remains is a bit of meal and the meat his gun can secure. He is hunting in grim earnest now, using all the cunning and skill acquired by years of practice. He eats woodpeckers, jaybirds, hawks, and skunks, drawing the line only at crows and buzzards. At this season of the year I have carried chicken hawks up to the cabins for the sake of watching the delight of the pickaninnies, who with glowing eyes would declare, Them's most as good as chicken. What happens to the robins, doves, larks, redbirds, mockingbirds, and all the songsters in this hungry season needs hardly to be stated. It is also a time between hay and grass for the rabbits and the quail. The cornfields are bare and the weed seeds are exhausted. A spring cold spell pinches, 
they lose their vitality, become thin and quite lack their ordinary wariness. Then the figure-four trap springs up in the hedgerow and the sedge, while the work of decimation goes more rapidly along. The rabbits can no longer escape the half-starved dogs, the thinning cover fails to hide the quail, and the songbirds betray themselves by singing of the coming spring. With the growing scarcity of the game now comes the season of sedge and field-burning. This is done ostensibly to prepare the land for spring plowing, but really to destroy the last refuge of the quail and rabbits so that they can be bagged with certainty. All the negroes of a neighborhood collect for one of these burnings, all their dogs, and of course all the boys from six years old up. They surround the field and set it on fire in many places, leaving small openings for the game to dash out among the motley assembly. I have seen quail fly out of the burning grass with flaming particles still attached to them. They alight on the burnt ground, too bewildered to fly again, and the boys and dogs pick them up. Crazed rabbits try the gauntlet amidst the barking curs, shouting negroes and popping guns, but death is sure and quick. The few quail that may escape have no refuge from the hawks and nothing to eat, so every battue of this kind marks the absolute end of the birds in one vicinity, and the next day the darkies repeat the performance elsewhere. At this season of the year, the first of May, the blacks are putting in some of their one hundred working days, while the single breech-loader rusts in the chimney-corner. Surely the few birds that have escaped the foray of the gang, lived through the hungry days, and survived their burned homes can now call Bob White and mate in peace. But school is out and the summer sun is putting new life into the bare feet of the half-grown boys, and the half-breed bird-dogs are busier than they were even in winter. The young rabbits are killed before they get out of the nest, and the quail-eggs must be hidden rarely well that escape both the eyes of the boys and the noses of the dogs. After all, it is not surprising that but three bevies remained of the sixty. Doubtless they would not, except that nature is very kind to her own in the sunny South. Not every white man in the South is a sportsman or even a shooter. Many are purely businessmen who have said, let the nigger do as he likes so long as he raises cotton and buys our goods. But Dixie has her full share of true men of the out-of-doors, and they have sworn in downright southern fashion that this thing has got to end. Nevertheless, their problem is deep and puzzling. In Alabama they made an effort and a beginning. They asked for a law requiring every man to obtain written permission before entering the lands of another to hunt and shoot. They asked for a resident license law, taxing every gun not less than five dollars a year, for a shortened season, a bag limit, and a complete system of state wardens. Unfortunately, a lot of white farmers were in the same range as the blacks, and being hit, too, they raised a great outcry. The result was that the Alabama sportsmen got everything they asked for except the foundation of the structure they were trying to build, the high resident license or gun tax, which alone could have shut out three-dollar guns and saved the remnant of the game. Under the new law, the sale of game was forbidden, neither could it be shipped out of the state alive or dead. The ever-popular non-resident license was provided for, the season was shortened and the bag limited. The office of state game warden was created with deputies to be paid from fines, 
hunting upon the lands of another without written permission became a misdemeanor, and then the whole thing was nullified by reducing the resident license to nothing where a man shot upon his own land, one dollar in his own county, and two dollars outside of it. In its practical workings the new law amounts to this. A few northern gunners have paid the non-resident license fee, and enough resident licenses have been taken out by the city sportsmen to make up the handsome salary of the state warden. The negro still hunts upon his own land, or upon the land of the man who wants corn and cotton raised, with perfect indifference to the whole thing. Who was to enforce the law against him? Not the one disgusted deputy with three big counties to patrol, who depended for his salary upon the fines collected from the negroes. It would take one man to every three miles square to protect the game in the South. The one effective way of dealing with the situation in Alabama was to have legislated three-dollar guns out of existence with a five-dollar tax, adding to this nearly a like amount on dogs. Hardly a sportsman in the South will disagree with this conclusion. But sportsmen never had a majority vote either in the South or in the North, and the South's grave problem is yet unsolved. I do not favor depriving the black man of his natural human right to hunt and shoot. If he is the owner of land, or if he leases or rents it, or if he does not, he should have exactly the same privilege of hunting that the white man has. That is not the question now, however, but how to restrict him to legal shooting, to make him amenable to the law that governs the white man, to deprive him of the absolute license he now enjoys, to kill throughout the year without mercy, without discrimination, without restraint. If only for selfish reasons, we of the North should reach to Southern sportsmen a helping hand, for by and by the last of our migratory songbirds will go down into Dixie and never return. Mr. Askins has fairly stated a profoundly disturbing case. The remedy must contain at least three ingredients. The sportsmen of the South must stop the unjustifiable slaughter of their non-migratory game birds. As a matter of comedy between states, the gentlemen of the South must pass laws to stop the killing of northern songbirds and all crop-protecting birds for food. Finally, all men, north and south, east and west, must unite in the work that is necessary to secure the immediate enactment by Congress of a law for the federal protection of all migratory birds. End of chapter 12